はい Okay, we're a bit behind, so we'll like whiz through this. Okay, good morning, everybody.、Um, let me tell you about.、Um, I have this friend called Cheryl who really, really annoyed me.、Um, she's a friend of mine from、uh, my youth group a couple of years ago, this Christian youth group that I was in. And she was a girl that、uh, she had grown up in church. And I know that one of the things that she really enjoyed about the Christian community was that sense of, of intimacy and of love and of、uh, support and friendship that she had within it. Uh, but then a couple of years later, she left,、uh, flew over to the United States where she、uh, studied,、um, dated, and eventually married this、uh, non believer, got very disillusioned with the church, and she dropped out. And、um, I remember at one time speaking to her, and I think it was over the phone, and、um, she goes, You know, Raj, I don't really miss having been in church because everything that I got from church, I'm now able to find in other places. And, and I couldn't help but ask, you know, but what about that, that sense of you know, love that, that you felt that you enjoyed so much within the church? And she goes, you know,、um, my friends at work, my friends from my sports groups, my, my husband, there are other places where I find love, real love. And in some ways, it's better than the love within church because I don't feel so judged. People don't look at the things that I do.、Uh, and so it's not that she doesn't believe in God. It's just that she feels that there's nothing different or spectacular or, or special about the love of God and the love of Christians. Now, this really annoyed me, partly because I didn't know how to respond to that. And anyway, you know, she was a better talker than I am. I, I couldn't have convinced her. But、uh, the other thing that bothered me was、um, there, there's something foundational about love, right, within our Christian understanding, because it's supposed to be. All of this, you know, our church, everything, this all exists because God has loved us and has redeemed us to Him. And、um, a central part of the Christian experience is us, you know, singing and worshiping and celebrating the way that God has loved us. And a core part of the way that we're supposed to express our obedience to God is by loving. So if love is so core and central to the Christian understanding, then what's different about it? Isn't it somehow? Special and different from, from the love of the world. So, how is God's love different? How is Christian love different from that of the world? And so, so this question bothered me for a while, and then it just kind of you know, submerged beneath the surface. And it just came back again while I was preparing for this sermon. Now, in this series of sermons, you know, but God sermons, we are examining some texts which、um, draw our attention to the surprising, the strange, the unexpected. Uh, things that God does within the scriptures, you know,、um, this series of five sermons where, you know, you see something, something is happening, and you think something is going to happen, but God decides to do something else. Or you think something, something, and, and God wants something, but God actually wants something else. Or you think something is, is preferable, but God says, nope, you fool. You know, it's, it's this contrast that God is、uh, drawing our attention to within these texts. And that seems to me to be a good place for us to. Think about how Christian love or the love of God differs from that of the world.、Um, so,、mm, this is the text that we're going to.、Hmm. Okay, the text is rolled over a couple of slides, but anyway, we're going to be looking at、uh, the text of Romans chapter 5. So, would you、um, open your Bibles, turn to, Ro- to Romans chapter 5, and put your finger in it? I will be putting the, some of the text up on the.、Um, 
on the screen, but we'll be referring to it a fair deal, so, so keep looking at that. So um, keep in mind that the text that we're really interested in, the verses that we're going to focus on are verses 6, 7, 8. But before that, we'll spend a couple of minutes looking at how it is that Paul gets to this particular place where he contrasts the love of God with the love of people. So, uh, so that, that's the big question we're going to try and answer somewhere along the way. So let's begin with uh, the beginning okay, of Romans. So um, b- before you get to chapter 5, what's happened is, um, so this is a letter from Paul, and he's writing to a bunch of Christians in Rome. And this is Paul's most comprehensive, most systematic exposition of the gospel. And so he begins in chapters about 1 to a bit of 3, talking about the need for salvation. He talks about how utterly sinful and unworthy and and in need of redemption people are. And then after that, in about chapters, most of three in chapter four, he talks about the way of salvation, the way that God, through the work of Christ, redeems us to himself. And then finally, when he gets to chapters five, six, seven, eight, he begins talking about the results of salvation, what happens to the two Christians after they've come to know him. So this is where we are um, chapter 5, just when, when uh, Paul has started speaking about the results of salvation. So I'm going to read it out, and you guys can just kind of like follow it along with your fingers or your eyes. You don't need to read it out along with me. So here we go. Um, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace, into, in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God now. <laughs> okay, that's pretty heavy stuff. And uh, the, the reason why it's, it's a bit inscrutable is because Paul has taken about five or six big ideas and he's kind of all tapped them into one big sentence that he's just kind of presented in front of us. And if you step back and you kind of tease out the big ideas that he's talking about, there's kind of two main groups of things he talks about. He talks about how we have a couple of things. We've received a couple of things as a result of our salvation. And he talks about a couple of things that, have, um, that are the mechanism, the way through which those, um, those um, benefits have accrued to us. And so it looks something like this. You know, we have justification. We have peace with God. We have access into his grace. We have rejoicing in the hope of God. And it comes through the work of Jesus. It comes through faith. So we, we don't have time to explore this in detail, but that kind of gives you a handle of how to look at what he's talking about. So look at uh, verse 3 onwards. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, produces character, produces hope, and that hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Again, a very dense text where there's lots of ideas floating around and it kind of lends itself to a similar kind of analysis. So again, we have something. We have the ability to rejoice in our sufferings. And the reason why we can rejoice in our sufferings is because we know that suffering leads to this, leads to this, leads to hope, and that hope doesn't disappoint us. And the reason why hope doesn't disappoint us is because Paul appeals to the argument of God's Love. So, so this is when he says, okay, now let me tell you about God's love. And he begins to unravel it and unpack it. But basically, this is the reason why he's going there in the first place. He wants to prove that God loves you so much that you can count on him to not disappoint your hope. And that's the reason why you can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Okay, so, so that's, 
like the background before we get to, okay, here we are. So verse 6, 7, 8. So you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, even though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, um, so Paul's trying to explain and, and magnify and display and, and, and make clear to us how great God's love is. And the place that he starts before doing that, he contrasts that with mere human love, with, here, with mere natural love. And if he's doing that, he's actually saying something pretty surprising, something pretty amazing. Because if you look at verse 7, he goes, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, even though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. And so when he's drawing this baseline, this benchmark against with to compare God's great love, he says, for a righteous man, for a good man, it's difficult, won't happen very often, but it's possible. Someone will die for them. This is natural love. And the kind of natural love that he's describing is the greatest possible kind of love, right? Because when Jesus himself says, you know, greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And this is the kind of love that Paul says, mere men, in the absence of supernatural intervention, in the absence of the Holy Spirit, are capable. And that's a surprising thing for Paul to say because just the last couple of chapters, right, where he's establishing how sinful and and thoroughly unworthy men are. He goes, and no one is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have altogether become worthless. There's not one who does good, not even one. And yet these people are able to die. Not often, but able to die for a good man, for an unrighteous man. And, and that's the first big idea when Paul begins to speak of the magnitude of God's love. He compares that to human love and he says that even without God, people, just regular people, are capable of, of tremendous love. Now this is when, once he's established that, he begins to compare that with something else. And... Um, so you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And although very rarely anyone, anyone will die for a righteous person, although for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through him, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Um, here when Paul contrasts God's love with that of man, he, he uses four adjectives, and I'm not giving any prizes here because I've already underlined the, the, the words, but um, four ways in which he describes the people that Jesus has died for. The powerless, the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love in dying for us while we were sinners while we were God's enemies. 
And these are not four different distinct groups of people that he's talking about. He's not talking about God having died for sinners and the ungodly and the undeserving. These are all different adjectives, different um, descriptions of one group of people he's died for, and that's us. And if you look back and you look at the over, overlapping groups of meanings, there, there's two big characteristics that he's talking about here, that God's love is so great because it's directed towards people who didn't deserve it, to the undeserving. And he's directing it towards people who deserve something else, to people who are unrighteous. And that's, and that's the central characteristic of God's love. That's the distinctive mark of God's love that sets it apart, even from sacrificial human love, that is directed to those who are undeserving and directed to those who are unrighteous. Implications. Um, there are three big groups of implications, um, and I'm just going to whiz through the first two, and then we'll get to uh, number three and spend a little bit of time on that. And so the first implication is this, just worship. Um, I, I feel a bit like Kevin's already, you know, uh, preached part of the sermon for me because uh, when he went through uh, Psalm 136, you know, uh, within the Old Testament, when people are worshiping God, um, and I haven't put it up because it's, it, it's such a, a long psalm, but I'm just going to read out part of it again for you. And, uh, and, and just picture the, the host of Israel all gathered in order to worship God in his temple. And they go, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. And to him who does great wonders, his love endures forever. And this goes on for 26 verses. Just this repeating refrain of, of his love endures. His love endures. And there's something indescribably beautiful about this. This, this contemplation of the, nature's, the nature of God's love that, that, that births worship in, in, in the people of God. And um, th- there's this other passage in the, in the New Testament. Again, I haven't put it up on the, uh, on the slides up there, but this is in um, Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul is praying for the Ephesians. And he goes, um, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. There's something about that, that apprehension of the incomprehensible, non-understandable love of God that creates His fullness in us. And, And so that's the... I didn't do that... Uh, so that's the first major implication of, um, of God's love and the greatness of God's love, and is that it, it births worship. And the second major implication is this, and it's assurance. Now, this is really the idea that Paul has in mind when he's talking about this. He's saying, God loves you so much when you're a sinner that you can count on him, that you can trust on him to not disappoint your hope in him. And therefore, even in the midst of suffering, you can have hope. 
you needn't lose hope. You can stand. You needn't waver. And, and so that's Paul's major implication that he has in mind while he's writing this. It's a sense of assurance. But for most of us who don't struggle, I think, as much with, with, with that idea, there's a third implication that I find particularly piercing, particularly um, challenging, and that's this. Verse 5, and hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that He has given to us. And that is, um, that's shocking. There's something about the work of the Holy Spirit. There's something about what happens to us after we come to God that creates within us God-like love. And, and what does that mean? That means through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we love the way that God loved us. And this is not just you know, a mysterious thing that happens, but God, Jesus did, commands this office. That my command is this, love each other just as I have loved you. And in Matthew chapter 5, he contrasts that with something else and he goes, if you love those who love you, what reward would you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing this? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Don't even the pagans love those who love them? Don't even the pagans greet those who greet them? Don't even the pagans love the righteous, love the deserving? And the frightening thing for me is this, that if this is true, if the mark of God's love is that he loves the unrighteous and that he loves the undeserving. If my love doesn't reflect that, if the people that I love, the sphere of people that I love and the way that I love doesn't reflect that, um, I need to face the possibility that my love isn't supernatural, isn't from God, isn't by the Holy Spirit. It's just a regular human love that anybody is capable of. Do we love like God? Do we love the unrighteous? Do we love the undeserving? Um, one of the great things I think about PPH is I'm able to look at the, um, at the budget that, uh, that, um, that Pastor Kokfai displayed just now and say, to some degree, yeah, we're, we're doing this. You know, this is what we're expending ourselves on, on, on missions and on ministry and on people that we have no legal or, or natural obligation to. We're spending ourselves for that. So that's good, but maybe that's too easy a question. Do you love like God? Um, and, and this past week, you know, as, as I've contemplated this, you know, I've been floored by this. If I look back at this past one year, if you look back at your past one year, who are the people that you've expended yourself upon? Who are the people that you've expressed love to? Who are the people that you've uh, given yourself to? Are those the people that have... Uh, are those only your family, your friends, the people to whom you owe love, the people who reciprocate your love, the people who deserve your love? Because if that's true, maybe the Holy Spirit didn't enable that in you. And um, I look at that and I'm... I'm pierced by that. Um, 
I haven't. I know haven't. I, and, and I want to. Why, why not? Why, why don't we have this ability to, to love people the way that God loves? Um, a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, just, just a couple of weeks ago, she went through this struggle. She's, um, uh, let's call her me. Um, she works as a nurse, and, and she came across someone who's very ill um, and, and had some accident, and, um, and she required a lot of help. We got into financial and, and logistical problems because of her um, severe illness, required an operation, and um, struggled through this. And May decided to, to take this upon her and, and try to help her and, and get some things going and, and marshal help from different sources to her. And, and eventually, this, this patient you know, had to go back to China, and so that was out of the way. But it was a very stressful, difficult time for her. And at one point, somebody um, in her church had counseled her, May, why are you doing this? You know, um, this person, it's a, she's a stranger, you don't know her anything. She's not your family. She's not your real friend. You've just met her. And if you take this upon you now, if you do this for every undeserving person that you find within your, 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 your work, um, you will overwhelm yourself. You can't do this. And you know what? That, that particular explanation that this church person gave her, he's right. Um, he identifies these two main elements of the reason why it's so difficult for us to go out and, and love those who don't deserve or have earned our love. One is that it's just overwhelming. You know, if we draw the circle of our love that wide and say, okay, I'm going to help every undeserving person, that's everybody, you know, and, and we'll be totally overwhelmed. And the second thing that the, the, this church person identified was that you don't really owe that person anything. She's not your friend. She's not your family. You don't need to love her. And in a sense, he's right. But you know what? If, if those are the criteria that, uh, that govern our love, if, those are the way, if that's the way that we decide who and how we love, there is nothing of God, there is nothing supernatural, there's nothing special about that kind of love. And if that's true, um, there, there's no reason for us to be in church. You know, um, I, I can find that kind of love elsewhere. I, I need not be here. And if you're honest with yourself, neither do you. We're called to something greater. So how do we do this? How do we, you know, find in ourselves the ability to, to love people who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it. Um, I'm doing this bit because um, what, one of my cell group members, you know, I can't see him right now, so, uh, once told me that uh, the thing about sermons is they tell you stuff that you know you're supposed to do. The hard thing is just doing it. They just remind you. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go out on the limb and give action steps <laughs> just to, to, to kind of address that. So um, four, four suggestions, and these don't flow out of scriptures. These come from from my personal experience and the kind of things that, that cultivate for me uh, a love of people. And the first thing is this. It's just repenting. And by repenting, I don't mean, you know, coming in front of God and beating yourself silly and, and you know, oh God, I'm sorry, I haven't loved. It's repent in the New Testament sense of the term, you know, metanoia, the change of mind, the acceptance that this is what God calls us to. 
one of my favorite authors is this um, Danish philosopher and theologian called uh, Søren Kierkegaard, and he wrote this very provocative statement in his essays called Provocations. And, and he goes, um, "The matter is quite simple. The Bible is easy for us to understand, but if we, but we Christians, we are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pre- we pretend we are unable to understand because we know that the minute we understand." We're obliged to act accordingly. So the easiest thing to do is to say, God hasn't demanded this of us. God hasn't required us to love like this. Repentance means going going before him and saying, um, I see this God. I see the way you've loved. I acknowledge the way that you've loved. I acknowledge that uh, your Holy Spirit is supposed to put this kind of love in me. And it's hard, but I'll try. Repentance. Second, you know, suggestion for me is be specific. And this overcomes that problem of being overwhelmed, you know, of, of just drawing your circle of love so wide. I need to love everybody now. Like, where do I start? Where do I end? You know, whoa, relax, you know. Choose, you know. Look at your life. Look at the sphere of people whom you express love to. And look who's just outside that. Who are the people that you come across every day, whether it's in your whether it's in your place of work, whether it's in your home, the people that you're right next to who don't deserve your love, who, don't, who haven't earned your love, but you can and you haven't yet. Who, who's, who's that person? Is it somebody that you live with? Is it your domestic helper? The question is not, have you been a, a fair and just employer? Have you showed love that goes beyond that? Is it someone at work? And I know that's really hard. Is it someone that you have a, a transactional relationship with? Uh, someone in a shop, you know, someone that you just buy and sell from and with, with whom you have no reason to show any other kind of love to? Identify the person. Decide what to do. It's not enough to you know, feel lovey, squishy feelings for them. But choose something that you do. First John three seventeen to eighteen. If anyone has possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God truly be in him? Let us not love with words or in tongue, but with actions and with truth. Decide. Do something. And for me, th- this is really, really important. It's because I find that I make great decisions that never come to pass, you know, the, the same reason why I set my alarm clock at 6am and then snooze when I wake up in the morning. Um, I need a system in place to hold me accountable to the things that I decide. Uh, I'm grateful for my cell group. One of the things that I do is I tell you guys, you know, uh, remember and remind me to do this because I know that if I just decide and don't tell anybody, I'm not going to do it. So make yourself accountable. Create a system for yourself that uh, forces you into love. Third suggestion, um, invest yourself in a ministry that, that makes you love. Um, I, I know lots of you guys do the TG and the capping thing, with, um, as, as I do. And one of the things that I've always found weird is it just, it doesn't feel like a joy. It feels so laborious, you know, going up and down this block, you know, giving things to people. And um, am I the only one who feels that way? Okay, I feel very, see, very uncomfortable silences, so I'll take that as a yes, but I'm not going to admit it. But um, 
there's, there's a sense of discomfort of doing that. But why? And, and I think, of my, think about it. I think the reason why I feel uncomfortable and out of place doing this kind of ministry in Thaimbad Gardens is because it's an HDB flat. I live in an HDB flat, block nine, and I don't know my neighbors. I don't go up and knock on their doors and give them things. You know, The kind of love that we're trying to express in our ministry in Thaiban Gardens, I don't do at home. And that's why it's such a huge disconnect. The problem is not with what I'm doing at Thaiban Gardens, which is weird. The problem is that I'm not displaying that same kind of love within the community that I live in. Um, and the more that I find myself investing in this kind of ministry, the more when I see my neighbors in my own block nine, um, I'm more inclined to do something with them, for them. Invest yourself. Now, there's some kind of ministries that don't seem to create or instill this in you. Things like, uh, I, I, I run some of these, um, you know, uh, low-cost clinics for construction workers and stuff in Panjuru and and, 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 um, and Little India and stuff. And the problem with those kind of ministries is you're seeing like 25 people who come in and out, you know, in and out. It becomes just like my day job. And uh, there's a sense of, you know, lack of, of lack of personal connection that makes it very difficult to cultivate that kind of love. So invest yourself in a ministry that allows you to connect with individuals, you know, like Theban Gardens. And another suggestion that I have is, is this. Care channels and, and child sponsorship. We just spoke about it within my cell group a couple of days ago. And the thing about child sponsorship is, you know, there, there's this kid who's somewhere in a faraway place that most of the time you'll never go to or you'll never see. But if you are giving to them, you know, and it's not much, it's what, $15 per month or, or, or something like that. And if you're giving to them, it's puts a stake for your heart in this strange place on your map. And as you're investing and you're giving to somebody, you find yourself growing in concern and, and, and interest and love for that place. So uh, two suggestions for me, you know, get involved in TG, get involved in CSC, and uh, sponsor somebody through Care Channels International. And if you don't want to do this, fine, you know, get out there, find another ministry, but invest yourself. And um, the, the last suggestion I have is this, and it's um, be near people who love. Um, I, I, there, there, there's a very dear friend of mine, a, a missionary in, um, uh, in East Timor, and, and she astounds me when, when I'm near her. Um, there's this one point where okay, she works in this place called Dili, which is the capital, and uh, we had traveled somewhere else for, for R&R, you know, to, to, to this... Um, to this east coast island uh, where there happened to be some you know, villagers. And um, I get there and I'm tired after a month of, of doing stuff for people. And I just want to you know, curl up by myself and, and be alone. You know? um, Donald Miller wrote somewhere you know, that he's like an electric screwdriver. He needs to be charged for 20 hours so you can use for 10 minutes. And I'm a bit like that. You know? I, I need that downtime away from people. And uh, so I'm trying to do that. And I find her out there among these people that she's not even supposed to be ministering to. You know, how, how inconsiderate of her. And she goes out there and she's talking to these villagers and she's finding out about their lives and she's trying to figure out how she can minister to their village. What's wrong with people like this? You know, and, and just being around them just 
inspires me, challenges me, and, and makes me aware of how much more um, God calls us to be. So there are some people within this church, and, and I won't name you, but, but I look up to you guys because of this. Because you love people who um, don't need to be loved, who haven't earned your love. And uh, I seek to be near you. And uh, for the rest of you guys, you know, find them and be near them. All right, um, last story. Now, is Edwin here? No, Edwin shared the story last week, but it's too good a story for me to leave out. So I'm going to talk about it again. And um, um, some of you have heard this, so I'm going to go through this fast. But there's about 10 or 12 different versions of this story. Uh, and it all comes from this uh, book that, uh, uh, what's his name again? Tony, Tony Campolo uh, wrote about 15 years ago. And he talks about, uh, he's this American... Um, sociologist and uh, minister and Christian speaker, and he writes about this time when you know he flies to Hawaii for something, and he can't sleep because of the jet lag. It's in the middle of the night. He's hungry. He's walking around outside and he's looking for something to eat, and he finds this you know sleazy diner, and he goes in there and he orders a, a donut and, and coffee, and as he's drinking it, this troop of you know prostitutes comes in and you know squeezes up around him, and, and they're talking to each other. And one of them, whose name is Agnes, she goes, you know, it's it's my birthday tomorrow. And uh, one of the others goes, you know, what you want me to throw your birthday party? And it starts teasing her about it. And Agnes goes, no, no, no. I was just I was just saying, you know. And I don't expect you to throw me a birthday party. I mean, nobody's ever. I've never had a birthday party throughout my 31 years. And um, Campolo's listening to that, and he thinks, all right. Uh, We'll do a birthday party. And so she goes, once she goes out, Tony Campolo turns to the bartender. He goes, hey, you know that, that lady? She comes in every night, right? Why don't we throw a birthday party for her tomorrow? Because it's her birthday. And, and uh, the bartender thinks that's a great idea. So they round up like this whole bunch of prostitutes in Hawaii into this little diner. And they get a cake and decorations and, and lights and everything. And they're all waiting. And um, Agnes walks in and there's a surprise, you know, happy birthday, sing, sing, you know, uh, blow out the cake. And, and, and she's overjoyed. She's never had this. And uh, this is when she goes, no, wait, wait, can we not eat the cake? I just want to show this to my mother. And, and, she, and everybody says, yeah, sure, it's your cake. You can do what you want with it. And so she says, okay, wait, I'll be right back. So she grabs the cake, carries it like the Holy Grail, and she, you know, goes out of the, um, uh, goes out of the, uh, of the diner. And so Campolo's here at 3.30 a.m. in this sleazy diner in Hawaii and surrounded by all the prostitutes in Hawaii. And he goes... Um, how about we pray? And so they do. Um, Campola leads the prayer for Agnes, and he talks and he prays for her, uh, that God would be good to her, and that God would save her and her family. And he does this. And at the end of this, they say amen. And then the bartender goes, hey, you, you never told me you were a minister. What kind of church do you go to anyway? And, and uh, Campola thinks for a moment, and then, he th- and then he says, one of those rare times in life when you say just the right things, he turns back to the bartender and goes, I go to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> and it would have been a great ending there, but um, the bartender looks for a minute and he goes, no, you don't. There is no such church. Because if there was, I would join it. And you know what? Um, He's right. For the most part, um, we're not like this. We don't love the unrighteous. We don't love 
the undeserving. Our love is limited to those who have earned it, those who are around us, those who we owe it to. And we're called to more than that. Can I get the um, Kevin to uh, come up and we'll just get ready to um, sing the last song. If, if we loved like this, the, the bartenders, the, the Cynthia's, my friend, um, they would have a reason to look at the church and say, there is something different, there is something special, there is something supernatural, there's something God-ordained about a people who love like that. And, and I want to be like this. I want to be like this. Would you, would you rise with me and we'll just sing um, the first stanza in the chorus of, uh, what's the song again? This is love. And then we'll, um, we'll just remain standing as we pray. For those of you who aren't believers, who don't know of this love, and, and, and you hear this and you, and you contemplate this kind of love and, and you think, man, this is hogwash. All these Christians, they talk about this, but they don't love like this. And um, you're right and we're sorry. Would you forgive us? But would you see that? Look beyond us, beyond the poor representation of God that we show, and see that this is Jesus. This is God. This is love. And if you want this, if you want to be indwelt by this Holy Spirit, if you want to experience this kind of love, would you come? Would you come to Christ? Would you talk to the person who brought you here, or, or talk to me, I'll, I'll be in front for a couple of minutes, talk to these church leaders and find out what, what this means, what this extraordinary, supernatural, otherworldly love is like, and come receive it. And for the rest of us, for, for the believers... I really wish I could pray 
for you in this, but I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to pray for me. And, um, and if you agree, and if you feel this way too, would you, would you in your heart, would you follow along and would you, would you say amen with me? God, I, I love you more than anything else. And, and more than anything else, I want to be like you. And as I contemplate thee, the magnificence of your love, the way that you've loved us, the way that you've loved me. I'm pierced by how far my own, my own love, my own expressions of love are from that. You say that it's by your Holy Spirit dwelling in us that, that your love is poured into our hearts. Holy Spirit, come. Would you enable me? Would you enable us? Help us to love those that we owe nothing to. Help us to love those who deserve nothing from us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. The service is over.